Mark 7:24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epaphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Gospel of Mark is, uh, is basically a, uh, it's, it's a biography of, of Jesus. Uh, it's walking us through the main events of his life, of his ministry, and the big question, uh, some of the big questions that this book, that the Gospel of Mark settles for us, is, uh, is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why does Jesus matter? And the reason that those questions need to be settled for us is because we tend to make our assumptions about who Jesus is, right? We tend to make assumptions about who Jesus is and why Jesus matters. We tend to paint sort of these broad stroke portraits of Jesus to fit maybe our own personality or maybe a Jesus who fits our comforts or the Jesus who gets behind our favorite cause at the moment. And what we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark is that even Jesus' contemporaries, his disciples, his critics, the people that walked among him, even his contemporaries had all kinds of assumptions about who they thought he was. And uh, they either get him entirely wrong or they just have way too small a view of who he really is. But now we're in chapter 7. And as Jesus has been performing these miracles, as he's been preaching his message, as word about him spreads, as is happening in Mark 7, people are starting to hear about him. They're hearing the message he's proclaiming and about the miracles he's performing as the Spirit of God begins to work on people's hearts. Now, in chapter 7, people are starting to have faith in the real Jesus for the first time. They're getting acquainted to who he is, with who he really is, and they're starting to have great faith in, in who he is. God is giving people the gift of great faith. And that's what we're going to observe and unpack here in Mark chapter 7, is we're going we're to sort of unpack what are some of the key marks, the key marks of great faith. 
What does great faith look like? What are the key marks of great faith? And now that we're getting acquainted with who Jesus is, we want to know what it looks like for us to place our faith in him, for us to place our trust in him. And so we're going to look at four points this morning, four points this morning that unpack what great faith is. First, great faith is a desperate faith. Secondly, it is hopeful faith. Third, it's humble faith. And last, it is a missional faith. Let's look at that first one. Desperate faith. Read verse 24 with me of Mark chapter 7. It says, From there he, Jesus, arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And here, and, he, and then he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So, so what's going on in these verses? In this, in this verse, uh, where, where we're at in the Gospel of Mark, you've got to understand, is a huge turning point. It's a huge turning point. So far, Jesus has been doing all of his work. He's been doing all of his ministry in his home region around Galilee. But here in verse 24, we're told that he just books it. He leaves that area to do some ministry work in another region with these areas called Tyre and Sidon. And it says that he really tries to lay low. But because of his reputation, he doesn't want like too many crowds coming in on him. But a woman... A woman hears that he's in town. This woman we're going to read about hears that he's in town. She finds out who he is. She's heard what people are saying about him. And she finds out even what house he's staying at. And then she goes on a mission to get to Jesus. She's on a mission to find him, on a mission to get to him. She hears about this miracle worker named Jesus, and so she walks into this house desperate for a miracle. And I want you to read what happens in verse 25 and 26. It says, Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, so she was possessed, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, there's some big words here, right? <laughs> there's some big names in those verses that we need to unpack. This woman who falls at Jesus' feet is a bold woman. She's a courageous woman. And we know that because she's a Syrophoenician Gentile. And Gentile, just so in case you don't know the background behind that word, a Gentile uh, mean, just basically means that she's not a Jew. She's not a Jew like Jesus and his followers. And Syrophoenician means that her community that she's from, which was neighboring the area of the Jews. She comes from an area that was not in Judea, which is where the Jews were from, but was neighboring it. And so what that tells us is that she would have known about a lot of the Jewish customs that existed at the time. Now, why is that significant? It's because Jesus at the time, he was a well-known teacher, a well-known rabbi. And according to cultural norms, you don't approach a religious leader like a rabbi unless you're, one, a dude, two, Jewish, and three, you know some stuff. And so this woman had none of the religious, none of the moral, none of the social or cultural credentials to approach a rabbi like Jesus. And so even though she knew this, she knew this because she was from the, she was a Syrophoenician. She knew what the Jewish customs were. And even knowing this, even knowing that she was out of bounds in relation to every racial, culture, and social barrier, she did not care. 
She enters the house without invitation and falls at Jesus' feet. Nothing's going to stop this woman. Why? Because when you see the act of this woman, when you see her courage, when you see her boldness, you have to ask the question, what is it that produces this kind of faith? And the answer is because she was desperate. She was desperate. She was in desperation. This woman saw what evil has done to her daughter. Her daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit, verse 24 says, uh, or, or, or rather verse 25. She's in a condition where no good teaching could reach her mind. No good medicine could heal her body. That old Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, says of her that her condition, this girl's condition, was only one degree better than death itself. Her mind is broken. Her spirit is broken. Her life has been totally maimed and altered. And this woman, her mother, who comes to Jesus, has no ability to deliver her has no ability to deliver her daughter. There's nothing this woman can do. And so she comes desperate to Jesus. And isn't that sort of a picture of our condition too? Isn't that a picture of our condition too, that apart from Christ, aren't we in desperation? Apart from Christ, aren't we born with a condition that ultimately leads to death? A condition where we've been ravaged by the effects of evil and sin in our world and also in our hearts. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do. When there's nothing you can do, that's the very definition of desperate. For all of our, for all of our desire that we might have to convince ourselves that we're okay, we're born in a tragic and desperate condition. And apart from God's grace, there is no hope for us. There is no hope for us. Desperation is the first mark of true faith. The first mark of true faith is desperation. You see, the first thing that God does when he begins to grab a person's heart is that he awakens them to their desperate need of his grace. This is why one of the first things that we do in our regular Sunday rhythms here on Sunday mornings here at King's Cross, like one of the things that we, we do at the start of every Sunday morning service towards, towards the beginning is we take a moment for a prayer of confession. It's a silent moment to slow down, to, to stop, to get some quiet. And for some of us, it might be the only 30 seconds of silence that we have all week long, right? We're busy people. But we make a rhythm of that every single morning, a silent moment to slow down and recognize that not only is the world broken out there, but our souls are broken in here. It's a reminder that we are all in desperate need of God's grace in our lives. And these rhythms that we have in our liturgy, one of the things that we've said is we, we, we look at them as public, uh, as public rhythms that are intended for private practice. We want to be regularly, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, on the day-to-day -day life, just considering our desperate need for God's grace. And so question to consider is, has God opened your eyes to the, your desperate need for saving grace? Has he opened your eyes for your, to your desperate need of his grace? Maybe he has already. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus this morning. And the question you might want to consider is, has he opened your eyes to your desperate need for ongoing grace?
for transforming grace, for sanctifying grace. You see, this woman that we encounter in Mark chapter 7, she is desperate for help, desperate for salvation, desperate for deliverance, desperate for her daughter to be made new and for herself to find hope. And that leads us to our second point to consider is how great faith is hopeful faith. Hopeful faith. Read verse 27 and 28 with me. So this woman, you got to keep in mind, she comes up to her asking for help for her daughter, and Jesus responds in verse 27, and he says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Remember, he's talking, he's, he's preaching to Jews here. He's, he's, he's preaching to his followers, his disciples. And he says to this woman, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him and said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, what is going on here? She's begging for help. She's desperate for help. And how does Jesus respond? He says, look, let the children eat what they want first, for, it's right to, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, when you read that, <laughs> FYI, it's okay and natural to be shocked and to ask, did Jesus really just call this woman a dog? <laughs> like, did he really just call her a dog like that? You should be jarred by that. What should be equally jarring and fascinating to you is that this woman is not shocked. She's not offended. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why does, does, does she get something that we don't? Like, if, if, if we had this type of experience with Jesus today, he would probably get, like, bad Yelp reviews, right? Miracle was great, but service was awful. Kind of rude. Like, what's going on here? Jesus is using what at this point was actually a really common and familiar term uh, amongst the the Jewish people for non-Jews, for Gentiles. He's not being mean. He's not being harsh. He's using a parable, a metaphor, to draw out her real faith. He's inviting a response from her. He's not talking, he's not talking about race here, even though she's a Gentile. He's not talking about her value. He's talking about his mission to the Jewish people. You see, in contrast, this woman, she's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not from Judea. That doesn't mean that she's less of a person. It doesn't mean she's less in value. It simply means that she comes from a pagan land, a people who do not honor God's law. They don't know the God that the Jews do. She came from Tyre, which was actually historically, interesting fact, this region that she came from was historically known as wealthy as as the wealthy privileged oppressor of Israel in the old testament book of ezekiel this this region the people from this region they were like the center of trade and they claimed to be godlike themselves and god judged them for it they claimed the people in this region to be godlike themselves because they were rich and they did whatever they liked They looked around at all the other people. They said, you got nothing on us. We just do what we want. Her people, her her ethnic people actually have a history of treating the Jews as less than dogs. And Mark here, the author of this book, he's being very careful to, to take note of this. Mark is careful to note her national and religious identity. 
And so this is a short parable when Jesus is talking about the children and the dogs. This is actually a short parable about how the promised rescuer, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the promised one, would first go to Israel. Now that's significant for us. You see, Jesus' statement about dogs, about food, and, and all this is primarily about his mission priority to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. After all, like in the Old Testament, Israel was the chosen nation through whom God declared a promise of redemption. You see, sometimes we tend to look at the Bible as like God had this one plan, right? And then that kind of didn't work out, and so his plan B is that he's going to send Jesus, right? Like sometimes like that's how some of us are kind of assuming that's how, that's how the Bible works. But no, it's like we're, we're, we're told that all along the plan was through this nation, through this puny nation, Israel, this chosen nation that was so much smaller than all the other ones, through this nation, God declared a promise of redemption, that a savior would come to the world through this people, through this nation. Now, what's the significance here? What does this have to do with hopeful faith? That's our point, right? What does this have to do with hopeful faith? You see, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all nations. The book of Revelation tells us that every, uh, every, every, every tongue will confess. Every, every nation will bow. He is the Savior of the world. He is Lord of all. Elsewhere, he's considered the Lord of all lords, the king of all kings. So don't you find it fascinating then, don't you find it interesting that Jesus never went to any of the powerful places in the world during his lifetime? He didn't go to Athens. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Alexandria. He didn't go to the Far East. He didn't go to any of the places you'd expect someone who's the savior of the world to go at the time. But when you read the scriptures as it unfolds the Old Testament into the New Testament, when you read the scriptures, you shouldn't be surprised by now to learn that God's plan and his mission always unfolds, seems to unfold in the most unexpected of ways, in the most counterintuitive of ways. You see, but that's what the grace of God does. The gospel, God's grace, it always defies human logic. It always confronts human expectations. We've been saying throughout this series that Jesus is better than the assumptions that we make about him. Well, this is one of those places where people made assumptions about him and where he'd come from and where he'd go and visit. So when Jesus is making that comment to this woman, here's what I want you to, to, to draw from that. When Jesus makes that comment to this woman, he's pointing out that God's plan in the Old Testament, that through the small and oppressed nation of Israel, he, Jesus is exposing that God declared a promise that salvation would come to the world through this people, through this nation. He has in mind when Jesus is making this seemingly rude comment, Jesus has in mind the covenant that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant to Abraham. I want you to read it with me in the first three verses of Genesis 12. It says, The Lord said to, to Abram, who he would eventually rename Abraham, The Lord said to Abram or Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the woman in Mark chapter 7, she is clinging to this promise. She's clinging to it. She's clinging to this promise. She knows this promise, and she's clinging to other Old Testament promises, like in Isaiah 49, which says, uh, where God, God told Israel, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, when Jesus told this parable, when he said, look, the kids eat first, then the dogs, the woman, she clung to that word first. She clung to that word first. That word first, she says, yes, you do go to Israel first. Yes, you do go to the children of Yahweh first. But there is hope for the whole world now because of it. She's showing hopeful faith that although she's an outsider, because Jesus is here, she will now be treated as an insider. Essentially, she's saying, look, when the provision of the father for his children is so rich that crumbs drop off the table, even the dogs are able to eat at the same time as the children. And she's saying, look, I would be glad to be a dog and to eat the morsels off the table of this one. What about you? What promises do you cling to when you're longing for, for hope? What scriptures confront you, do you that, that you cling to when you're longing for, for transformation? When you're longing for, for hope, for hope in, in salvation? For hope when you're, when, when you're suffering? What word do you cling to? What good news do you, do you run to? And it leads us to our third point. Great faith is now also humble faith. Humble faith. Read verse 29 with me. It says that he said to her, Jesus says to her, for this statement, for this statement that you just said, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, remember, where did she get this impressive statement? In this woman's heart, even though she was an outsider to God's people, her heart was held captive to the word of God. That requires humility. You see, it requires humility. It takes a humble posture to, to be captive to the word of God. There's a key lesson for us here in that. You see, you and I, we tend to have sort of these active inner lawyers that go to battle inside of us, right? Like we defend ourselves against the diagnostic of the scriptures. When, we, when, we, when something from the scriptures confront us, we, 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 our active inner lawyers kind of come up and try and defend us. So the Bible says our hearts are wicked and deceitful, but we tell ourselves like, no, I got a pretty good heart. We try to avoid looking into the mirror of God's word to see ourselves spiritually as we really are. But you see, this woman, she responds humbly. She says, I am what you say I am. 
I am what God's word says I am. I am an outsider. She's like, I fully admit I own that. I am an outsider. I'm outside the covenant promise that was made to Abraham, but I'm placing my faith in your mercy because of your word. Remember, this woman's people, her, her background, her people's background, they have a long history as being the oppressors of the Jews who would look down at, at the Jews. And yet here she is with the king of the Jews, the Messiah of the world, with the humility to fall before him and own the fact that she brings nothing to the table except her need. And if she can have even the smallest part of the table, then that is more than enough for her. Remember, last week, uh, we, we saw how Jesus said that we are all unclean. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile or what, what have you. We are all unclean because the heart is unclean. You see, when Jesus said that, he leveled the playing field between Jew and Gentile. He said, sin separates all of us from God, and no one is immune. And this woman owned that. You see, the Pharisees, the religious elites that knew God's law and should have known better, they missed that point last week. But this woman, this outsider, she owns that. In humility, she owns that. I want you to think about that. Like if we understand that our greatest problem is not not out there but in here, it'll kill entitlement in our hearts. It shows us that our, 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 our hope is not fixing things out here, but being renewed in here. And this woman got that. You see, this woman had humble faith. She recognizes her need for mercy. What about you? What about you? Do you are, do you, are you here this morning? Do you recognize your need for mercy? You see, if we act like we have a claim on God because of where we came from, because of like the privilege that we're coming from, the religious background that we have, because of our involvement in the church, because of how shiny we look on the outside, if we act like we have any claim on God because of those things, we get, the Bible says, nothing. But if we come with humble faith like this woman did, then we walk away full. That's why the scriptures say whoever loses their life will find it. I want you to see that there are two sides to humble faith, though. There are really two sides to humble faith. One is you need to own your need for grace, which we already talked about. But two, you also need to embrace his provision. You see, humble faith isn't just acknowledging your need for grace, but it's embracing his provision of that grace. You see, because there's some of you in this room, some of you focus so much on your helplessness before God that you're constantly beating yourself up. But we're not meant to wade and to stay in our hopelessness. We're not meant to wade in our helplessness. You see, awareness of our need is supposed to propel us to embrace his provision. That's why the woman says, even the dogs eat crumbs. She gets it. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. She's not leaning on how awesome she is, but on how awesome Jesus is. She's not leaning on how great she is, but on how great the mercy of Christ is. We come not because of how worthy we are, but because of how worthy the Lord is and how great his grace is.
When you come to God, how will you come? When you approach him in prayer, when you approach the Lord's throne of grace, how do you come? Do you come feeling entitled? Like, I'm a good person. I do, I do, I've done some good stuff for you, and so therefore, like, I've earned my way. At, at my, 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 I've earned myself a seat at this table. Do you come entitled? Do you come guilty with a guilt that is paralyzing, that actually keeps you from getting too close to him because you're so ashamed? You see, both of those get in the way of seeing and experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ. Both of those. You need to experience God's grace. And the more you understand the depths of your sin, the more you should rejoice then in the grace of our God. And the more you should rejoice that God has provided for our sins through Jesus Christ. I love sort of the snarky way that D.L. Moody put this when he said, Jesus sends, he said, Jesus sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. <laughs> You see, when we take ourselves too seriously, we can fall on the error of either legalism where we think too much of ourselves, we're self-righteous, or if we make too much of ourselves, we can also be too self-condemning. Like if we're approaching God like we're, you know, like if we, if we come to church, if we approach God like we're coming to him for a top-off, like that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about making awesome people better. It's about making desperate people new. It's about change from the inside out. It's about whole transformation. You see, sometimes pride manifests itself by puffing ourselves up. But sometimes it manifests itself in beating ourselves down. It's still pride when we, when we say, uh, it's, it's pride on the one hand when we say, um, I'm not so bad. But it's also pride when we say, I'm far too bad. Like I think that somehow I need to make my way to God as if, as if, uh, I would, like if, if I was just a little bit better. That somehow I can make my way to God if I was just a little bit better. You see, in both categories, we're looking to ourselves for hope. Both categories, this is a self-salvation project. We're diminishing the magnitude of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And we look to ourselves. And so Jesus declares the woman's daughter healed now in verse 29 because of her faith. And then he sends her home. She didn't walk away. This woman didn't walk away with small crumbs, but with the full benefits of someone who was seated at the table. I want you to read the good news in verse 30. It says, she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This leads us now into our fourth and final point. I want us just to see how great faith is a missional faith. Great faith is missional faith. Read verse 31 and 32 with me. It says, then, then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they, a group of people, they brought to him, they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him, they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So what's happening is word is spreading. Word is spreading that the prophesied Savior is here. That he's healing people. So they can't stay away from him. They got to get to him. They bring a deaf, uh, deaf guy to him who's got a speech impediment. Another Gentile. 
And that is like the mission of the church. What they're doing in this ver- these verses is like the mission of the church today. You see, the mission of the church has always been to make disciples, to make transformed disciples, to make followers of Jesus. The church's mission is not a program, it's not a platform, but it's people. The church's mission is people, to give hope to people, to transform people. To make them new. And that's what's going on here in these verses. Lives are being changed. The kingdom of God is pushing forward. And we want this good news to spread. And so they bring him another man in need. And they say, Jesus, lay your hands on him. Who do you know? Who do you know who, like that, needs to be brought to Jesus? Who do you know that is both spiritually desperate for hope, but also spiritually ripe to be changed by him, to be changed by Christ. I want you to look at how the way that Jesus heals this man. I mean, the way that Jesus heals this guy is just weird and like fascinating. Read it, verse 33 to 35. Jesus responds to their request. And in verse 33, it says, taking him, the the man aside from the crowd privately, Jesus puts his fingers into his ears, into the man's ears. And then after spitting, he touched this man's tongue. Verse 34, and then he looks up to heaven, he sighs and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And then this man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and then he spoke plainly. That's weird, right? Like I want you to notice, though, here, like the, 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 this fascinating way, the stark contrast that, that, that Jesus has in the way that he, 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 he interacted with this woman's daughter, where he healed her from afar, and the way he took this guy away to, to, to sort of a private area to heal him. I want you to notice that Jesus is not a distant Savior, but that he gets super up close and personal here. He gets up close and personal. Why? Because every miracle Jesus does teaches us something about who he is and why he came. You see, the the encounter with the Syrophoenician woman taught us that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of not just the Jews, but now also the Gentiles. And here we see Jesus literally touch this deaf man. He invades this man's dead ears with the life of his fingers. He invades his dead organs and transforms them to new life. Normally, we don't like it when people get up in our personal space. But if you're bringing that kind of life-altering transformation, then it's like, man, Jesus, have your way with me. Have your way with me. Get up close and personal. Jesus looks up and he prays, be opened, and this man's ears are open and his tongue is released. And isn't that a metaphor for what he does for us? You see, Jesus opens our ears to hear his word. He loosens our tongues to proclaim it then to others. Jesus doesn't just promise life. He is life. He invades what is dead and dark and broken to bring the light of his life-giving spirit. And this is exactly what the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about him. This is what the Old Testament scriptures prophesied about him. Read, Read this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35 with me. Decades and centuries before what we're reading is happening in Mark, 
This was written in the, in the book of Isaiah uh, by the prophet Isaiah, uh, Isaiah. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is talking about Jesus, the, who, what Jesus would look like. It says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened when he comes, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And isn't what's happening in Mark chapter 7 exactly what Jesus is doing? This is exactly what he's doing. He's fulfilling these old prophecies. The blind are seen. Ears are being opened. The lame are walking and running. Tongues are now speaking and singing. And if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that's what he's done for you too. I once was blind, but now I see. We were spiritually deaf to the good news, but the Spirit of God has awakened us to it. I want you to read on. Word is spreading about Jesus, but he's trying to keep it from spreading because he's got, he's got some work to do. So this is really interesting. Look at verse 36 with me. It says that Jesus charged them to tell no one. He heals this guy, and then he charges all the people there to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now here we see Jesus, and we've seen this a few times throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is telling people, hey, don't, don't tell everyone about this, what just happened. He's keeping his reputation on a leash here at this point. Why does he do that? You see, because people assumed, as word was getting out around him, people assumed that he came to just be a physical savior, to be a miracle worker. They didn't, see, there was a group of people that most people didn't understand that he was a the Messiah, they thought he was just a miracle doer, not the Messiah of the world. And so people were assuming that he came only to be a physical savior, but in a few chapters, we're going to see that becomes clear to more and more people, that he's not just a physical savior, but a spiritual one too. There's going to come a day, and we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark, there's going to come a day where he'll tell people, he'll tell, tell them to tell everyone. He'll tell his disciples, tell everyone about this. Go out there, tell the good news, spread the message of the kingdom. But here in verse 37, in verse 36, he tells them not to because that time hasn't come yet. He's got some work to do. And even though they disobey him in verse 37, what they do in their disobedience should be a model for us today. When they say to everyone, he does all things well. Jesus does all things well. Now when Mark records their words saying that Jesus does all things well, he's not choosing those words on accident. When he says Jesus does all things well, Mark is echoing the words of creation in Genesis 1. When God made creation, he stepped back and, and he looked at it and he says, it is what? good. He looked at his creation. He said, it is good. It is good. That phrase is being echoed by the people in Mark chapter 7 when they say, he, Jesus, does all things well. And what that tells us is that 
all the good, the, the goodness that was uh, in Genesis 1, when God made all things, when he, when he spun the stars into existence, when he made everything to perfectly reflect his glory, before sin stained and broke creation, back when we were living the good life, the good life that we all long for, right? Like, do you ever wonder, like, why there's everybody, regardless of their creed, regardless of their religious background, every single one of us longs for something more than what this world has to offer us. We all long for something more. We all know there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more to this. It's because there's, there's a yearning, there's a wiring inside of us that, that we were made to live in the kind of world that existed in Genesis 1 and 2. When God said, it is good, that's the world that we were, we were created for. And Mark's making a point here. When the people say he does all things well, you see, Jesus came to restore all that was broken. He came to save sinners, but also to save the world, to restore the world to a new creation, to a new kingdom, a new garden, a new city. In what ways has Jesus done all things well? You see, in all his teaching and ministering and miracles, he's, all of this is pointing to his saving work on the cross. Last week we saw that all are unclean, all are sinners, all are unclean with dead hearts. But Jesus, he came to cleanse us. He came to give us new hearts. He came to transform us, to bring salvation now to all, not just to the Jew, but also to the Greek. And how does he do it? All by his grace. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who truly has the right to sit at God's table. Yet, as the one who, who truly had the right to sit at God's table, he became like a dog like an outsider when he died on the cross bearing our sin and our shame. He was rejected from the table on the cross so that we could sit at the table for all eternity. That is amazing grace. That is the result of true faith, a faith that is desperate, that is hopeful, that is humble, and is now missional. So as a church, we want to be marked by that faith. We want to be a people marked by these, this kind of faith, marked by this amazing grace. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.